0: Acts chapter two, especially in the heart of the chapter, is a movement of God. God started this movement in Acts chapter two in the first four verses by pouring out the Holy Spirit on 120 believers, probably in the temple, maybe a porch, a portico in the temple. And there were those who were there who saw what was happening and they were interested and they came to find out more information. The Spirit moved on 120 people. Before the sermon is done, there are 3,000 saints that have been added to the church. God uses Peter, Peter of all people, once he's filled with the Holy Spirit, not to put his foot in his mouth, which he was very good at, but instead to preach a message in where people were cut to the heart and said, I want to serve God. We want to take a look at that today. Now, this is the first revival in church history. Church history. It's not the first revival in the Bible. We've got a revival in Nineveh. That's the largest revival at all. We've got a horrible evangelist. And God gets a bunch of people saved despite a horrible evangelist, right? So that's something to learn from but this is the first time in church history. And there's a principle in Bible study called the principle of the first occurrence. Anytime you find something in the Bible being mentioned the first time, happening the first time, then there's usually something significant about it. The same is true here. This is the first message given by the church after they received the Holy Spirit, and we learn a lot from it. Now, the title of our message is Analyzing Peter's first sermon after being filled by the Holy Spirit or analyzing the first sermon after the giving of the Holy Spirit. But I've got a shorter title and it's called The First Revival. This is God reviving people. Now, because of what's happening in Asbury today, Asbury, Kentucky, if you haven't heard of that, there's a revival happening. A lot of people wanting to live for God, a lot of people coming to Christ, a lot of people who are nominally living for God now living for him with everything they've got. God just seems to be doing a movement. And there was, is a movie out now in the theaters called The Jesus Revolution which is the beginning of the Calvary Chapel movie. It's really Greg Laurie of Harvest Christian Fellowship. It's his testimony and it's powerful because it talks about this revival and what God did. Now, because of that, there's a lot of people coming out and talking about what revival is. And and I listened to a couple of them yesterday and that was a mistake because I'm going to talk about them now. Uh, Everybody has to have an opinion, right? Everybody's got to say what they think revival is and isn't, and why what's happening at Asbury is or isn't a revival. So I want to clarify what I believe revival is in biblical terms. First of all, revival happens in individuals, and when it's a lot of individuals that it happens in, that's when it becomes a revival. It's not something collectively happening among them. It's something happening in individuals. And when someone doesn't know Christ and they invite him into their lives, they are born again spiritually. Because when you are born in the flesh, your spirit is at best dormant. Some theologians believe your spirit is dead and that you have to be born again, and God brings your spirit to life. That's revival. If you have a dead or dormant spirit and God brings your spirit to life, and Jesus said the day's coming when those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, and your spirit's dormant, that means you can't even worship him. He has got to bring your spirit to life, and that's revival. One of the, one of the videos I listened to yesterday, the guy said, you can't have revival and said something's dead, and if your church has revival, that means you're dead, and it's a condemnation on your church. And I'm like, oh, Shuddy, that's what I wanted to say, shuddy. When when people come to Christ, that's a revival. But there's another point in which revival happens, another thing that happens in revival, and that is people that have been walking with Christ for a while, then they walked away. And we are prone to go away, Uh, we're like sheep, prone to go astray, the Bible says. I walked away from the Lord when I was 18. A couple things happened with people I trusted who are mentors of mine. And I said, if this is what Christianity is about, I don't want any part of it. But I'll tell you what was really going on inside of me. I grew up in the United Methodist Church. I got saved when I was 14. I was in Assembly of God in charismatic churches until I was 18. And I was looking at the world as an 18-year-old, now an adult, and thinking, maybe there's something out there I want. I, I hadn't experienced the world yet. I'd been in the church my whole life. And so I walked away for a year and I went into the world and God came and got me. He brought me back. The first time I went back into a church, it was an assembly of God church. There was a time of worship. There was a preacher and nothing happened. I didn't hear anything from God. I, I knew what it was like to sit in church and be moved and to be touched and, and to have God speak to me, but nothing happened. And I thought I've gone too far. I did too many things. I I, li- I walked away. From, I lived as a non-believer for a year. And I thought, God doesn't want me anymore. I, I, in truth, I thought God would save me, but I just thought he wouldn't use me again. That's what I thought. A little bit later on, a cruise buddy of mine, we used to cruise Eastdale in Albuquerque, and a cruise buddy, I, I would cruise with him when I was backslidden, and a cruise buddy of mine called and said, you gotta go to church with me on Friday night, because I got saved. He had no idea that I knew what being saved was. I think I had witnessed to him when I was drunk, but that doesn't work really well. <laughs> and so, so I went to that church. It was a wild, charismatic church. We had to step over people to get into the church. Things were going on. But when I sat down in that pew, God said to me, it's time to come home, son. And when, that, when God spoke that to my heart, I just started to weep. And, and, and I ugly cry too, by the way. It was an ugly cry of the Spirit. And God brought me back. That was a revival. I had walked away from God. I was at that point dead to God. I'm not saying I was unsaved because I don't know where I was, but I do know God brought me back. And if you're here today and you walked away from God and you find yourself in church today and God's encouraging you to come back to Him, that's revival. Now, not only that, revival could also be someone who has a relationship with God. You're walking with him. But all of a sudden, God starts to move on your heart and you go, I want more. I want to be deeper. I want to be closer. I I want more of God in my life and I want God to use me. And that's revival as well. It's not revival of anything that's dead, but it's reviving that desire to be used by God. So let the critics be critical, let them quote Spurgeon and Finney and be critical about what's happening in the United States today. I think God's moving. I think people are being moved. Let the haters hate. The haters are gonna hate, 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 but God is gonna do what God does and draw people to himself. And we see a revival. And I don't think that's by any accident. We see a revival in Acts chapter two as as God begins to move. Now, the setup for this chapter is that the people of Jerusalem who have seen the Holy Spirit come down, who are in the temple, are already believers in God. They wouldn't be in the temple if they didn't have an interest in God, okay? Number two, these are people who have been around during the ministry of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, during the 50 days that he had risen from the dead and appeared to some people so they had heard about it. So these people are kind of in a ripe place to be harvested. You and I may be doing the work. We're planting seeds. We're breaking up ground. We're watering seeds. And God adds the increase. Never does the Bible say we add the increase. I don't want to add the increase. I can't add to the church. Only the Lord can add to the church as he wills. So these people are ready for it. And as Peter starts to talk to them, he doesn't talk to them about a new organization that's starting. Doesn't talk, we're beginning a church here and this church is going to be this and do that and do this. And never will there be a revival if you're going to talk about the church you attend or the movement that you're a part of. If I get up here and talk about Calvary Chapel and how we are and what we do, and, and God's not going to cause a revival to happen by talking about the things that men do. God is the author of the church in general. And we want to lift up Christ. And one thing you're going to notice about this whole passage Is that he's talking about Jesus the entire time. It's Jesus. There was a Jesus movement in the 70s. It's always a Jesus movement. People are compelled by Jesus. They are not compelled by me getting up here and doing a message on being positive or I'm going to talk to you today about how to make yourself more fulfilled or happier or more blessed. People aren't compelled by that. You may like self-help kind of stuff, but it doesn't do the work of God. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. I know he met the cross, but if I lift Jesus up week by week, people are going to be compelled by him. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but these are they that speak of me. The entire Old Testament pointed towards Christ. The entire New Testament talks about Christ. The book of Revelation talks about his return, finishing things up and establishing things. It's all about Jesus. And the world's compelled by that. A few years ago, there was a program that came out on the Discovery Channel called The Bible. You guys may remember it. It started off with, with Noah and Abraham. And a lot of people watched. That had a couple million who were watching. But when they got to the New Testament and Jesus came on the scene, eight million people tuned in the first night. And it grew from there because there's something compelling about Jesus. He's different than anyone. Who tells you to love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, and bless those who curse you? Who tells you those kind of things? Who reaches out to sinners and has meals with them and is called a tax collector, a collector and, uh, it's called a friend of tax collector and a winebibber because of his love for sinners? Who forgives the sins of a prostitute when they weep on her feet and wipe uh, her tears with her hair? This is Jesus. And we hear those stories and we see them and we're compelled. There's the, the show The Chosen that's out today. And a lot of people are compelled by the chosen. I, I, it drives me a little crazy because they do a lot of things that aren't biblical. They're telling it from, from the story of Mary Magdalene and from Peter. And so they're making a lot of decisions that aren't biblical. That drives me crazy because I wouldn't make them the way they would do it, right? And that doesn't mean my way is right and their way is wrong. I'm just saying it drives me crazy. But you know where that show is powerful? When Jesus heals the lame man in the first season. Or, or supernaturally gives Peter a catch of fish so that Peter will know to follow him. Why? Because those are biblical. It's powerful when the 5,000 are fed and when Jesus walks on water. Those are the powerful events. When you have Nicodemus wanting to be a disciple and then not choosing not to be a disciple, that's not powerful because it never happened. And here's the danger of it. Let me just tell you the danger and I'll move on. The danger is I know what is biblical and what's not. When you watch The Chosen, you know what's biblical and what's not, the majority of you, because you've been in church and you've covered these things. But the person out there who doesn't know Christ doesn't know what's biblical and what's not. And when they have people handing out flyers for the, for the Sermon on the Mount, I'm screaming at my TV. When Jesus is rehearsing what he's saying, you know, uh, 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 and I'm, I'm screaming at the TV. When Jesus asked Thomas, do you think that's good? Should I say that? Should I say something else? I'm like, turn it off! Just shut the thing off! I can't watch it anymore. Because those things didn't happen. But when you get to the parts that are real truth about what Jesus did, people want to see it. People are moved. Joe Rogan, of all people, very critical of Christianity, was exposed to the chosen and found himself compelled by Christ. Because Christ is compelling. My point is, lift Jesus up. Live for him. The whole Bible's about him. It's always a Jesus movement. The 70s, when the hippies came to Christ, was called a Jesus movement. It's always a Jesus movement. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. So what does Peter talk about? He talks about Jesus. He talks about his life, he talks about his death, he talks about his resurrection, he talks about his exaltation. He's talking to people who are already familiar with him. So a lot of times you and I have groundwork to do. Peter didn't have to do that. So here it is in verse 22. We've already seen the Holy Spirit given. We've already seen the passage in Joel where he says this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. We've already heard Peter quote Joel Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the Old Testament foretelling the time of the giving of the Spirit, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People will be critical and say, that's not enough information. God can add whatever information he wants to add later on. It's biblical. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You need Christ? Call upon him. He'll come into your life. He'll save you. He'll change you. He'll move in your life. So let's pick it up in verse 22. Men of Israel, Peter said, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you. They knew this by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. They'd heard what Jesus did. They'd heard of people being raised from the dead. Blind, a a man born blind seeing. But here's the thing. So have you. And so have many of us. There's never been anyone to impact culture the way Jesus has. Since the time of Christ, Jesus has influenced the world in a greater way than ever before. And knowing those few things about Christ... Causes us to want to know more about his life and his ministry. And these are all signs of his messiahship. The Old Testament had said that he would preach the gospel to the poor. In Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. These things were foretold about the work of the Messiah that he was going to move in their lives. Now the next thing that he does is he speaks of the death of Jesus. He speaks of the ministry quickly, moves on to the death. He says two things about Jesus' death. Number one, it was determined by God. It was going to happen. When God determines something, it will happen. This is what we call the sovereignty of God. We get sovereignty from a king. A king has sovereignty. A king can do what he wants to do. But a king doesn't always do what he wants to do. Sometimes a king does what's best for the people. And so those who define sovereignty as God always doing whatever God wants, define it wrongly. It means God does what God chooses to do. And sometimes he does what's good for you instead of what's best for him. Because he loves you and wants you. And so here it says in verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put him to death. So God determined that it would happen, but these people who were here, some of them no doubt leaders, were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus because they cried out crucify him, because they handed him over. You and I are responsible for the death of Jesus as well. Because if it wasn't for my sin, Jesus would not have had to die. Now, I need to rephrase that because if I weren't here, Jesus would have died anyway. And so I'm going to rephrase it. If it wasn't for our sin, then Jesus would have never have had to die. So we are the ones responsible for the crucifixion of Christ because he saved us. We are the joy that was set before him. So those two things, God determined it, it was gonna happen, because God determined it, and his foreknowledge. Don't tell me that God knows everything and has foreknowledge and doesn't use it. I'm tired of hearing people say that. And, and, And a certain amount of theologians will do that. Well, God has foreknowledge, but God has chosen to not use his foreknowledge. Where's that in the Bible? That may fit your theology really well, but why wouldn't God use his foreknowledge? God determined for his purposes and foreknowledge. And you crucified him. By the way, when he says this here, you have taken into, uh, you, and, and uh, let me read this, you, take, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put him to death. That goes against a, princi- a principle that you're taught in, in seminary about teaching sermons. They tell you when you are preaching, never insult your audience. You don't ever want your audience to go, you just insulted me. But he's like, you guys took him and you crucified him. Sometimes you have to tell the truth, even if it's going to insult people, because the truth hits hearts. This is what happens. Now he gets into the resurrection. He gets into his life and then his death, but now his resurrection. And this is a little more complicated. But the Old Testament foretold that Jesus was going to rise again by David. And David is called here a prophet. When David says, the Holy One shall not see corruption, people will say, well, that's David talking of himself. So Peter needs to deal with this whole thing. So let's read through here and see what he says. Verse 24, talking about the resurrection He says, who God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It was impossible because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and death is not going to hold him. Therefore, death will not hold us because he led the way for us. For David says concerning him, I pursue the Lord always before my face. Uh, I foresaw the Lord rise before my face. For he is at my right hand, and I may, uh, may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoices, and my tongue is glad. Moreover, my flesh shall rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades. Now, the word Hades in the Old Testament is the word Sheol, it's, it means the place of the dead. It's a mysterious statement. It's not hell, as we know hell in the New Testament. It's the place where the dead go. Sometimes it refers to the grave. And so David says, I rejoice in that you're not going to leave my soul in Hades. He then goes on to say, for you will, uh, yeah, will you not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. Now, some say he's talking about himself. But David never called himself holy. David never said, I'm the Holy One. The Holy One is the Messiah, and you will not allow the Holy One to see corruption. So it was impossible that Jesus would remain in the grave and, 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 and his body deteriorate, uh, decompose, because the Holy One would not see corruption. He goes on to say, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence, which tells us there's joy in the presence of God. Now, Peter explains what David meant, starting in verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you, the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had shown him an oath to him, uh, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, that he would rise up Christ and sit on the throne. And foreseeing this concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he says David was a prophet who knew that he would see corruption, but that Christ would sit on the throne of David and Christ would not see corruption. He starts off by saying, David died, was buried, and his tomb is here with us. His tomb was in Jerusalem. He's corruption. So he can't be saying of himself, Your Holy One will not see corruption. This is a promise of Jesus being risen from the dead. Remember, these people had heard that the tomb was empty. These people had heard that Jesus had appeared after his resurrection. Now they're looking at scriptures that tell them, foretell a resurrection from the dead. It's not the only one, by the way. Isaiah 58 and Psalms 22 also talk about the Messiah being resurrected from the dead. This is amazing. Three times in the Bible, It foretells Jesus being resurrected from the dead, something impossible, and it happened. The Old Testament spoke of it, and it happened. Now, Peter doesn't end with his his resurrection. He now wants to talk about his exaltation, being being seated or seated at the right hand of the Father. Why does he want to do that? Because Jesus said, I'm going away, and I have to go away, And it's better for you that I go away because if I don't go away, I cannot send the Holy Spirit, the helper, to help you. I have to go to my Father and then we will send you the Holy Spirit. So he wants to show them God sent the Holy Spirit and that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. This is verse 32. This Jesus, God has raised up. Notice here it says God raised him up. In another place, Jesus said, I will rise up. In another place, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will raise him up. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit raised him up. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. He includes them. Therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which you now see and hear. So he's talked about Jesus coming full circle. You're seeing, he's at the right hand of the Father and he's pouring out the Holy Spirit on us and you guys are hearing and seeing this today. He goes on to say in verse 34, as he speaks of Jesus being the Messiah, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, this is another prophecy of David, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The word for Christ is the Hebrew word Messiah. He's talking to Jewish people in the temple. You crucified him and God has made him Lord the Messiah. Now what happens to them? Verse 37, this is what happens when they hear this message. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to their hearts. This is an act of God. You don't just hear a message and be cut to your heart. The Holy Spirit works with you and convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If you are here today and you are hearing about Jesus and you're thinking, I want to start living for him, or you walked away and you're thinking, I want to come back to him. Or if you're a believer that says, I want him deeper. I want to know him in a deeper way and I want to give him righteousness and I want to get rid of this sin in my life that's been hounding me. And I want want God to deliver me and set me free. God's cutting you to the heart today, just like he cut them to their heart. So, so God cut them to the heart and Peter said, and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? (coughs) Excuse me. They wanted to know, what do we need to do? Peter's response, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. Now let's talk about a couple of things here. His response, repent. To repent means to change your mind. So when you repent, you decide, I'm not living this way anymore. It means as a non-believer, you've been chasing all kinds of things. You've had your own desires. You've lived your own life. You've lived your own way. You're feeling empty. You're feeling like you need something else. You're feeling like God is calling you. Maybe that's even why you're here today. And so you repent by saying, I'm going to change. I'm now going to become a disciple of Jesus. Jesus gave everyone an invitation to be a disciple. If anyone wants to be my disciple, Jesus said, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. That's an invitation to every person in this room, everyone listening online or the radio. If anyone wants to be my disciple, then let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. And so you can respond. And when you do that, you're going to repent. When you believe, you're going to change. You're going to become something new. If there's something in your life as a Christian that you need to get out and God's convicting you of it today, you're going to repent. Repent means to change your mind. You give your life to Christ. You believe him. You say, Lord, I need help. And and you are changed. And now you begin to live differently. So Peter says, repent. The next thing he says is, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, quickly, those who believe that baptism is salvation, that the miracle of regeneration happens at salvation, use this verse. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And so they say, see, you've got to be baptized for the remission of sins. If you're not baptized, you can't have your sins forgiven. But what you need to know about this word is this word can either be translated for or because of. For or because And because the vast majority of the New Testament tells us if you believe you will be saved I could quote dozens of scriptures that say that it is the vast majority of the New Testament there is a passage that says believe and be baptized and you will be saved but there are many more that say believe and you will be saved in fact Ephesians 2 8 9 says for by grace you have been saved through faith not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if it's translated for, it goes against the vast majority of the New Testament. So instead it should be translated because of, and I want to read you a a translation that does that. This is the Amplified Bible, and it says, And Peter said to them, repent, change your old way of thinking and turn from your sinful ways, accept and follow Jesus the Messiah and be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of sins. So there is a translation that determined it could be translated for or because and determined that it should be because your sins were forgiven when you gave your life to Christ. And now you are baptized because of the remission of sins. You need to be baptized. All right. Now, one more thing. It says here to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And so there is a cult called the Jesus Only Cult. And the Jesus Only Cult has died out almost everywhere except Tucson, Arizona. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? And you know why? Because William Branham, who was one of the leaders in the Jesus-only cult, did a lot of work here in Tucson. William Branham was a false prophet. Why do I call him a false prophet? Because he prophesied things would happen that didn't happen. He also denied the, the Trinity. He believed that Jesus was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when someone starts messing around with the person of Jesus Christ, then we don't agree with what they say. And he said, you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus in order to be saved. In other words, if you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is what Jesus told us. So Jesus says, go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here he says, baptize in the name of Jesus, which I think is just Peter summarizing that. But he says, if you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're not really saved. So you guys, because it's here in Tucson, are going to run into people. Maybe you've got family members in this. I talk to those of you who have family members that are in it. And they say, you're not really saved because you weren't baptized in the name of Jesus. And they'll say, what were you baptized in? You're like, I don't know. I was underwater. I couldn't hear. I have no idea. (laughs) But they'll say, you were not saved. You've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And to that, you say, no, I'm not going to put myself under this cult. And... The Jesus movement, the Jesus-only movement, is very controlling, like cults are controlling. So I want to warn you about that. Now let's move on, because that wasn't the point. I just needed to cover that here. We'll talk about it more as we make our way through the book of Acts. And so then it says, on verse 40, um, or verse uh, 38, the middle of it, And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises to you and your children... To all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with, uh, uh, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved uh, from this perverse generation. Peter continued to encourage them to give their lives to Christ and to be saved. So there are people who say today, don't give altar calls. Altar calls are unbiblical. Tell Peter about that. Because Peter is telling people to be saved we are told that we are ambassadors of christ as if we are employing people to reconcile with god that is what we do could you imagine if peter just told these thousands of people and then said okay bye bye and then left churches i understand why some theological churches don't like altar calls because of their theology and i'm not going to get into that now i don't have time but i'm amazed when churches that don't have that theology Say, we don't believe in an altar. We don't believe in giving people a chance to get saved. What? You're just going to, okay, God bless you guys. Have a good week. See you later. I'm amazed by that. At least do something. Meet someone in this room. Meet over at this table. Let me talk to you after the service. At least do something to give people a chance when they're cut to the heart to get saved. And so what happened? He applauded them with many other words to, to be saved. Then verse 41 Then then those who gladly received the word were baptized on that day and 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 people get saved. If there was no opportunity for them to come forward and pray or to be moved on or to talk to somebody and be baptized, then there there was no way 3,000 got saved. But they gladly did it. And when you give your life to Christ, you don't give it reluctantly. You are glad to do it. You are saying, Lord, I want to give my life to you. Now next week we're going to see that they meet together in a sense of community and that God adds daily to the church those who are being saved. The revival starts in this Jew- with these Jewish people and they get together in communion and God adds to the church daily those who are being saved. It's God that does the work, not us. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that we can take time to analyze and evaluate this message by Peter, as he lifts up Jesus and his people are cut to the heart and they respond and they gladly receive you. What a great thing. And Lord, I pray that there would be those today who would gladly receive you. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. I'd like you to keep your heads bowed, please, and your eyes closed for just a couple of minutes. I'd also like to ask that no one would leave early. We're almost done. We'll dismiss you here shortly, I promise. But if you're here today today, and you've never given your life to Christ. Maybe you never knew there was such a thing as truly being born again. Or maybe you never knew that you could become a disciple. That Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple. You never knew that. You never knew you could become a follower of Jesus. But now you're ready. You're like, I'm done living for myself. I'm gonna live for him. Because that's what Christianity is. It's me no longer living for Robert Furrow, but now living for Christ. It's you no longer living for yourselves, your desires, your ends, your means. But you are now sacrificing your life to him for whatever God wants to do and however God wants to work in you and the good works that he has for you to walk in. And if you're here today, all you need to do is receive him. This is very biblical. The Bible says as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. You will be adopted into the family of God. So many other things I cannot talk about that you will discover as you become a Christian, but it starts with you receiving him, believing him, and asking him into your life, receiving Christ. If you're here today and you want to do that, or you walked away from him like I did, but today is the day you're coming back, or, well, that, that if you want to give your life to Christ or you want to return to him, I'm going to ask you to do something bold. Right where you're at, Just raise your hand. By raising your hand, you're saying to me, I want to give my life to Christ or I want to come back to him and live for him now. I've walked away. I want to come back. Lift your hand up now and lift it up high so I can see it. Be bold. Christ died openly for you. You're saying I want to live for him. I want to acknowledge your hand. I want to pray for you. And I want to pray with you as you lift it up. God bless you. ma'am, right down here, God bless you. Back under the balcony, that's great. Anyone else? I'm not going to go on and on. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. God bless you, sir, right by the aisle, under the balcony. That's great. Anyone else? Just raise your hand. Don't let this moment go by. God bless you, ma'am. Near the front, that's awesome. Anyone else? Just lift your hand up now. Lift it up high. God bless you, sir. And God bless you under the balcony as well. Both of you guys, that's great. Anyone else? I'm tempted to glance through the room one more time, but I won't. If you raised your hand and I didn't see your hand, then know that God saw it and that's what's important. If you're online and you want to give your life to Christ, you can pray this prayer that we're going to pray right now. If you're listening on the radio and you're wondering, what am I listening to? This is a live service and we're giving people a chance to give their lives to Christ. And you could give your life to Christ now as well. So I would like everyone, including those who raised their hands, to repeat this prayer after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I've sinned. And I know my sin separates me from you. I also understand that I can be forgiven by the death of Jesus on the cross. So I invite you into my life. I turn from my sin that I can live for you. That I can be your disciple. That I can be a follower of Christ in the name of Jesus Amen.